0: Yeah.
1: Everyone's scared to sit close to you here.
0: (laughs) They they have experience.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, thank you for having us here and for agreeing to this.
0: My pleasure. Um, Happy to have you. Happy to have everybody. I hope you guys are having a great day here. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we're excited to be doing this with you. Uh,
1: Likewise. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about some things, deep thoughts about entertainment.
0: Deep thoughts.
1: Uh huh. And um, you're gonna be asked some questions that are percolating around town. Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna start with what might seem like an easy question, but it's not. Right. Okay, what is the role of the CEO of a major agency today? How do you spend your day?
0: Wow, really, is that, that's a question?
1: That's a question. It's Um, gonna lead to the other questions though, don't worry.
0: Well, there's, uh, I mean, my day is really spent, you know, I like to say, like, I have one client. I'm an agent with one big client, United Talent Agency. And my job is to think about what, how to best serve United Talent Agency. What are the things that United Talent Agency needs to continue to grow? You know, how does United Talent Agency continue to finance and capitalize its growth plans? Make sure that we have the best people. Make sure that the best people are playing in the right roles. Um, thinking about what the future of the entertainment industry looks like and anticipating the moves we need to make in order to stay ahead of that. You know, what I what I like to is, is I never want to be in a place where a client says, I really want to do dot, 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 and I say, oh, sorry, we don't do that. I always want to be in a position to, you know, be able to meet the need of the client at the time that they discover they have the need, and more so to be able to anticipate opportunities that are coming down the road for clients and be able to go to them and say, have you ever thought about Because this would be something that would be great for you. And I think to the degree that we do that, to the degree that we're future-facing, serving the client's needs today as well as their needs tomorrow is the degree that we can remain successful. So I guess my job as CEO is to be sort of thinking about those things and then, uh, you know, making sure we have the capabilities to serve the clients in that regard.
1: So... There are a lot of headlines. That, How was that?
0: Was that a good that, answer? That
1: was a very good answer. Okay. Well done.
0: What uh, do you guys think? Pretty good answer? <laughs> it's a dead crowd. Is this like the post-lunch thing? Do we need a little warm-up? I mean, my God.
1: Um, but you've diversified the agency yes. a lot. Yes. A lot. And you have private equity money in here now. Yes. You, uh, you have sports, and Rich Paul did an amazing job this morning. Lots of things. Yep. So are you... Are you a representation business? Do you call yourself that still?
0: I mean, we are really very much a representation business. I know like people like, you know, is William Morris still a representation business? They really are, but we really are. We do not own other assets other than really entertainment assets. We partner in a couple of different production initiatives. Uh, We represent a management company in the influencer space. But for the most part, and we have a, you know, top flight, the leading, uh, consulting firm, MediaLink, which focuses in the world of brands, consulting with brands and platforms, but we're really very much so built on the idea of serving clients, representing clients, serving clients, and helping them build their businesses.
1: Uh, And will we expect you to continue to be? (laughs) Just in the representation business, and I just, I don't mean. Yeah, I mean, it. you
0: know, I, I was talking to somebody, I said, yeah, we're just sitting here over here stacking nickels, you know, it's such a tough business. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't really look at the world sort of like in a, such a binary way. If the right opportunity came along and there was an asset that we thought would be a great asset for us to own, that we would be great owners for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't say, "Oh, sorry, that's not representation," so we can't do it. I don't. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think of it that way now.
1: Okay. Um, so then, I want to turn to uh, two topics that are intertwined, um, okay. and I think you'll agree: um, streaming and streaming profitability, um, mm-hmm. and the looming potential Writers Guild strike. Uh, mm-hmm. So. That feels
0: like three, but
1: okay. Who's counting? Um, So uh, let's start with the question that probably um, impacts your clients a lot. Uh, The industry is fighting to become profitable through streaming. There's one profitable streamer in town. How is this affecting how your team does their job?
0: Well, I I think it's affecting us because, you know, a lot of our buyers are in some phase of trying to figure out what business they want to be in. They sort of were one thing, then they went all in on another, and then they're kind of retrenching, they're realizing that by sort of squashing multiple windows into one window, they didn't necessarily do themselves as much good as they thought they might. They did they weren't their their stock wasn't recognized as a similar multiple to Netflix, which I think was part of their ambition. So I think people are wondering, wait a minute, what should we do? Do we go backwards? You know, what's the health of? And the pandemic came, which sort of accelerated, you know, which created a huge amount of anxiety, and that anxiety accelerated people's movements. There was a sense of urgency and a rush to get over to streaming. And I think now people are going whoa 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 what what's going to really make sense uh-huh. what what is our long what's the long term smartest um, strategy for us to pursue how do we maximize the value of our content across for across multiple platforms for as long as possible and I think there are certain things that are you know fundamental to the exploitation of content maximizing the value of content that. May not exist inside of the Netflix universe, and so I think there's, I think people are starting to evaluate all the different ways that content can be exploited, and I imagine those thoughts are going on everywhere, including at Netflix.
1: Right, and you, I'm sure, have had many clients who've experienced some pain in the last half year where shows are being unordered. I guess is what we're calling it. Yes, um, or things that were shot are not. Being shown anymore anywhere? Uh, how, how what do your clients say to you about this? And that's a tough. That's tough news to deliver.
0: It's tough news to deliver, and it's you know it's a really painful experience because you've made something, you've worked on it, it's there, and no one sees it. The assumption is, oh, it must not be very good. So you don't really have the ability to say, no, 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 it it's really good, or I really think it's good, or at least to have the experience of watching it with an audience and either enjoying their enjoying of it or be able to see wow look what we missed and what we could have done better so it is really difficult for clients and that's an unfortunate you know so much that's happened in this sort of wake of the pandemic has been you know a product of this sort of rush rush decision making and and sort of leaping to conclusions and i think that the byproduct of that has been you know a lot of money lost and a lot of people going, wow, that was a horrible experience.
1: Well, we're nearing the one-year anniversary of Netflix's correction, as maybe some people would call it, mm-hmm. um, where they also introduced advertising uh, right. that, or the, the plan to enter advertising um, several months later. And you have some thoughts about that in terms of what it should mean for the people you represent.
0: Well, that's a, it's a small... I mean, what I really believe is important for our business is alignment of artists with the success of the shows and films they work on and i think that you know the netflix model has separated people from that alignment in a way that you know we knew probably wasn't a good idea but i don't know that we could have necessarily foreseen all the downside of it and then you know the bargain of netflix was let's we're gonna pay you a bunch of money we're gonna pay you more than you might have normally made you're gonna, you're gonna have no back end. There's gonna be no additional revenue received against this programming. It's gonna sit on our server, and that's gonna be that. And now they've sort of, to some degree, changed the rules by having advertising. And I think there is a worthwhile consideration of what that might mean. From what I know so far, is the advertising, the amount of subscriptions to the ad product isn't really that significant. So I'm not sure there's going to be that much revenue or it's going to be that meaningful. We'll see how important that piece of the puzzle is for Netflix long-term. But in general, the more important conversation to me is really how do we create alignment between creators and, uh, platforms and studios and the people who finance content because they should be aligned. It's good for business if they are aligned.
1: So can I just ask you, like, can you, you, Jeremy Zimmer, can you not get all the metrics that you need when you need them?
0: Still all the metrics and all the data is not readily available to me, Jeremy Zimmer.
1: (laughs) And there, do you feel like as an industry, Jeremy Zimmer and the Jeremy Zimmers of the world can't do anything about that at the moment.
0: Is, when, when, well, I when think is we it... can do something about it, but we can't do something. It's going to be part of a steady, consistent conversation. I mean, now there's going to be a pretty significant conversation around residuals having to do with the WGA and the DGA. That's another form. That's another form of compensation that requires transparency around data. Right. So it seems somewhat inevitable to me that the data will become available. Okay. Advertisers are certainly going to require data in order to spend significant dollars at Netflix. I mean my colleague and partner Michael Casson, has worked with Netflix on their ad platform. There will be some requirement for the advertisers to have transparency and once you know once that gets out of that once that box gets opened, I imagine there'll be further transparency
1: so your clients you start you know when Netflix was uh... Beginning its uh, ascension in the town, it probably seemed pretty exciting to get the upfront payment, and you know, a, a, you didn't have to worry about performance of your show. It was it seemed uh, seemed pretty great, but now that conversation seems to have shifted um, shifted to uh, people wanting you know wanting to be rewarded on the back end. Um, and,
0: well, yes,
1: yeah.
0: Mm- First of all, what we know is that every new entrant becomes the thing, right? So whatever that is, is, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. Everybody wanted to do their shows at, you know, HBO and everybody wanted to do their, you know, let's go to cable because there's more freedom on cable. Let's go to HBO. There's more, you know, and uh, so each, every time a new technology comes, there's a lot of curiosity and a lot of excitement and ultimately you know, you evaluate it over time and you go, oh, yeah, there's a lot of great things and there's some things that are not optimal compared to the network experience. I mean, Netflix, as compared to the network experience, you can't make a comparison as an audience member or as a creator. The, net, the network experience, unfortunately, became so brutal for creators That Netflix is an absolute incredible place to make a show.
1: So, what do you mean brutal for creators? In what sense?
0: Well, I just think if you, you know, if we watch what happened over time at networks, you know, the sort of aspiration, the quality aspiration of the networks continued to go, let's say, downhill. There was less urgency around making great shows. I mean, you just all have to do is watch. You know, if you turned on the Emmys ten years ago the networks were not even players in the Emmy Awards other than, you know, maybe this is us. Right. And you think about that, where you came from a place where they dominated the Emmys to where they weren't even a part of the Emmys. Right. And you think about, so what was that experience like for creators? And then the ad load on shows was so painful. Like, well, you know, now, I mean, for those of us who have uh, DVRs, it's almost impossible to watch a show on a regular show on network television because the ad load is so painful. I mean, we have to do it with sports, but if I, you know, if you see that State Farm ad, you know, (laughs) one more time you're just going to be like, I can't take it anymore. This poor guy, Jared, let him free. Free Jared. Um, So, you know, the quality experience for the creator, the quality experience for the audience, all that stuff, it was time for a new experience that was a more quality experience. And Netflix is an incredible consumer experience from that point of view.
1: All right. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question that might be hard for you to answer, given that you do business with everyone in town. But for creators, what is the what's the the gold ring for if you to, to, to have your show right now? Is it because people still want the economics of. An Abbott Elementary, right? Like, is you're going to make residuals till the end of time or, or no?
0: Well, it's, it's great to have a, a network show that's successful, but what happened with the economics around network television is it made, it was like, if you wanted to hit a home, everybody talks about hitting a home run in network television, but now to hit a home run in network television, you've got to hit the ball like a thousand feet which right. in, is three times as far as your normal home run because they kept, first of all, they had their own, you know, the way they, they changed the definitions of profitability, it made it harder and harder and harder to actually, you know, hit a home run. Deficits right. got crazy. There's all kind of vertical integration. They're selling to each other. So there were all sorts of challenges that made it harder and harder to hit those home runs. So network economics became harder to achieve. Having said that, yes, still, a network show that stays for five or six or seven years and goes into some form of syndication or just sells across platforms, that is a, still a very desirable thing.
1: Okay. So that is sort of the crux of being able to experience a back end uh, on your shows uh, is is one of the major points of the upcoming WGA
0: negotiations, right? I'm not really sure that that is a major point. What what really the WGA is focused on is sort of really more targeted towards. Uh, I hate to say working writer. It sounds like I don't mean it like that, but you know the everyday. And by the way, there have been times where the WGA has made claims that and 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 fought over things that I certainly didn't agree with. This is not one of those times. And I think we Wait, are. Are
1: you are you saying you you are siding with the WGA?
0: Oh, absolutely, because okay. the, the the things they're fighting for right now are fair and right for writers. Okay. They're fair and right for the everyday writer because of things like span. You know, the, the rules around span mm-hmm. and the shrinking of the size of the order has made it very, much more difficult for a working writer to make a real living as opposed to how they used to. Can
1: you give us some of those examples? Like, Cause we hear stuff about like, you know, a, a 12 episode season, which used to seem very short and is now an eight episode yeah.
0: season. And so if you get paid by the episode and you used to do 22 episodes or 24 episodes, you're now doing eight. But the expectation is that you remain exclusive for a much longer period of time. Cause it takes so long to make those shows. Right.
1: And um, mini rooms, that's a term I hear not in a good way around town.
0: Yeah. So it used to be, okay, put a room together, which means let's hire a staff of eight or 10 writers. And you're really going to sit there and you're going to break the entire season. You're going to beat out all the episodes. You're going to come up with storylines. But now they say, we don't want to commit to the full room. We're just going to have like three three writers. There's all sorts of... Um, there's all sorts of title suppression, which keeps the pay levels down. There's there's a bunch of things that are happening where the average working writer isn't getting paid and can't get paid fairly and can't really afford to, you know, can't have the lifestyle that they might have had during the days of network television.
1: Right. And we're not talking about driving Bentleys around town. I mean, that was that the, the
0: average. I mean, yeah, these poor guys are driving Mercedes. I don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> No, we're not talking about driving Benleys or Mercedes. What we're talking about is making, you know, a good working wage, but not really, you know, we're not talking about the guy. And that's why this is separate from the back-end conversation. Right. This is about adequate, fair compensation for people providing a really valuable service and creating great television. That's what this is about.
1: Okay, so again you're Jeremy Zimmer as you know and you've established that. we have established your identity but you yes. are talking to your peers at the the buyers that at the most senior level around town. Yes. you're saying this and you're what are they saying back
0: I'll be honest with you I don't get tremendous disagreement on this subject okay but what they're facing is the incredible overall cost of creating content today, that the cost of making television and film is so much higher than it's been, and the profitability and the margins have been so impacted that while they can say, well, yeah, that's reasonable and we can understand, but in the context of all the problems we have, just giving more money to more people isn't helping to solve the problem. So what the pushback I get when I make these claims and when I fight for back ends and all this stuff is, yeah, but the cost of the shows is so incredibly high.
1: But is it is some of the self-inflicted wounds by the streamers and studios because they have committed to the streaming future that didn't work out as well as they had
0: thought it would? Well, it's not... First of all, we don't know if it's worked out or not because the future isn't here yet. Okay. Right? So we're in a process.
1: Okay. It's a very generous interpretation. I know know we like to
0: declare the winner and the loser, but we're not there yet. Okay. But yeah, they've committed to going down this path and they've committed to having a certain level of very expensive, high-end content to attract and retain their subscribers. And therefore, they've sort of made their bed and they're lying in it. And they've said to everybody, hey, there's not going to be any back end, so we're going to pay you a bunch of money up front. Right. Those are absolute factors in the problem of the high cost of content. Um, But that shouldn't necessarily... The people, you know, it's ridiculous to think that the writers should be bearing the brunt of that.
1: Are we... Where do you think we are in peak TV in the trajectory
0: Again, you know, peak t- TV implies a, a critical inflection point. Yep. I don't know that we're at a critical inflection point. I think we've definitely had, are in a leveling off and a reassessment, which I think is good. Yep. Because what we know is, we know, you know, for at UTA, we we're fortunate to live with, you know, really high end, incredibly talented people. Mm-hmm. And we know that the demand for great content is is forever yeah but what you see is in order to fill up that always on you know constant demand if anybody ever wakes up and wants to see a show about you know a cheetah playing chess we've got that you know so that it's like it's almost like we have to compete with youtube so we're going to make every show in the world i think that to some degree there has to be a reassessment like wait a minute we don't have to make every show in the world we want to make we want to have great television. We want to have a lot of varieties. We want to have shows from all around the world to to feed a worldwide global audience. But we don't have to have every show from everywhere around the world.
1: Well, I think I think you've seen this Saturday Night Live skit that aired a few weeks ago uh, about it was it was Hollywood quiz show. Yeah, and no
0: one knew the name of any of the shows of
1: the in the last five years. Yeah. Nothing, not right. a single thing. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, you're, you're in the business of making hits. Your clients want hits. Um, what, how, have, what is the feeling among your clients? Are they resigned to the treadmill right now, to being on the treadmill? Or did, are they, everyone wants to know that their thing is going to land somewhere and, and be seen. Like, just exp, what are those conversations like?
0: I mean, the, cl- the, the conversations are, are, they're really about, I want to do great stuff. And where can I do good work? And will my work get seen? And you know what? As much as you can say, oh, you know, Netflix is terrible. You know, we have director clients who've made beautiful movies that, you know, opened in 12 theaters and, you know, maybe did $4 million at box office and went to video. And, you know, I don't know, maybe a million people, 2 million people saw them. Same movie on Netflix and, you know, 50 million people see it. 100 million people see it. So. It's hard. You know, these are nuanced discussions. It's not that clear. But what is clear is our business needs to be in the quality business. And to the degree that we try to serve everybody all the time, everything they want, it becomes harder and harder to focus our time and attention and resources on making great things. Right. And I think ultimately what we need to do is focus on making great things and sharing the upside in a fair way with artists. So they're inspired and uh, compensated for continuing to do great work.
1: Okay, so how does this get resolved?
0: Slowly, like <laughs> everything. <laughs> Slowly okay. and painfully.
1: All right, I'm going to ask you to predict. Are we going to have a strike?
0: My, I would say there's a better than even chance we're going to have a strike. You guys are writing like 53 days to the abyss, right? (laughs) See, this is the problem. It's not the abyss. We've had, I don't know, three strikes in the last 15 years, and they lasted anywhere from, I don't know, seven to 20 weeks, and it was not an abyss. It was a reset, and it was painful, and it was really painful for our clients. It was really painful for craftspeople and technicians and caterers and makeup people, and it was really painful. Yeah. And I don't know that it was necessarily beneficial, but it moves the ball forward towards, you know, it's very hard for these agreements to keep up with technology. Uh,
1: You know, when I look back at the 2007-2008 strike, I was the highest level creators. Everyone was all in. um, You have obviously some of the top creators in town. Are they feeling the pinch the same way?
0: I think because of the specific nature of some of the major points that are in discussion right now, our clients believe that the things that are being fought for make sense. Okay. And And, and I I mean, honestly, I'm the first guy to say that's insane, but I I actually understand the argument on behalf of the writers. I do think it makes sense. I can't believe we can't resolve it without a strike. It's really hard for me to understand. I mean, we, you know, we make... We make impossible deals every day. Right. So this deal doesn't seem impossible at all.
1: Um, when you say you want back-end reform, what does that ultimately look like in your mind? Does that just mean reinstating the back-end? Like,
0: Wait, what did, what did you say?
1: You, you've been an advocate of back-end reform. Yes. So what in your mind, what does that ultimately look like? Is it the back-end of...
0: Well, I don't think it's the back, but I think we have to really say, okay, what is it going to look like? Because I also don't believe that it makes sense for every piece of content that you know sits on Netflix. You know, you you know, Orange is the New Black has been sitting on the Netflix uh, server, Mm -hmm. and I don't know that that show is doing any good. For Netflix. I don't think anybody's subscribed. Oh, I gotta get Netflix so I can watch Orange is the New Black. I think it's just sitting there. I don't know that I don't know that tons, you know, thousands or millions of people are watching it. But that show might be really valuable to an Avod platform. Right. And that's another opportunity to create revenue for the creators of that show, to give revenue to Netflix so they can go buy another show. And to give advertisers a chance to advertise against premium content. Right. Because the advertisers are a critical part of our ecosystem. Right. And as a result of premium streaming, they've been somewhat disintermediated from great content. Right. And so the way for them to come back into the fold, putting more money back into the system, support new content creation, is for these shows to come off of their streaming platforms and be sold into other to other broadcasters
1: okay all right. Should we move on to the next problem, child?
0: Jesus, yes. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, theatrical. Yes. So we're seeing, like, not great headlines out there about the these... Uh, Do you,
0: wh- I- what papers are you reading? I am reading
1: all of them. reading papers from like, <laughs>
0: 2020?
1: Well, the... the but no, the, you know, you're seeing AMC, and they're doing, like, tiered pricing on seats and uh, Regal Cinemas and, um, and not enough product in the marketplace. But right.
0: But when Wait, there is product, this year, we're off to an incredible start.
1: Tell me. So tell me what you're seeing.
0: I think what we're seeing is what everybody's seeing. I mean, whether it's, you know, Ant Man, Creed, you know, uh, I mean, this, um, this year so far has been a, a, a series of very successful movies. Puss in Boots, I can't remember them all because now it's Strange Fright. But we're, we're off to a very, very good start in the beginning of this year. And I think this is going to be an incredible year at the box office.
1: What are, you, what are you excited about?
0: I'm excited about Chris Nolan's movie. I'm excited about Marty Scorsese's movie. I'm excited about our client James Gunn's Guardian of the Galaxy. Um, I'm really excited about Air which is coming yeah. out in a couple of weeks, I think. Yep. And I, I'm I'm excited that there's going to be an interest, uh, a more interesting balance of kinds of movies that are coming out, right? And that are going to get people excited about the box office. You know, we where this business used to really depend upon big, great movies about people and about humans and about human dilemma and human accomplishment. And I think that, you know, part of what's happened is in the sort of being all in on, uh, you know, franchises, the emphasis of that has shifted. And I think another important part of our business used to be the Academy Awards. The Academy Awards used to be a huge marketing platform for the movie business it wasn't just for the movies that were it was for hollywood for the movie business it, around the world the academy awards were a symbol of filmmaking excellence and particularly filmmaking excellence from the hollywood movie system right and as a result of there not being those kinds of pictures being consistently fed through i think that the value of that symbol and therefore the value of the U.S. filmmaking business on a global basis has been diminished. I think it's really important for our business that we go back and focus on making great movies.
1: Well, so what? it's, it's Oscars week. What is the narrative of this year's Oscars, do you think, when you see what was nominated?
0: I mean, I think the narrative of this year's Oscars was that it was hard for people to find you know, high budget quality Mm -hmm. oriented movies to include in the nominations. I think the movies that are nominated are beautiful movies, but they're not movies that drive audiences to a huge degree. Right. And I think that you can have both. Right. You know, I think you can have both. And I think that we need to go back to working on having both.
1: Um, Let's talk about stardom. Uh, you represent a lot of stars in your shop here. Um, at the Oscars, Tom Cruise, one of the most durable stars of our lifetime, uh, is, is his movie is a, a big nominee uh, this week. And um, but it's becoming harder and harder to maintain stardom. Uh, and what? You, how? Tell me what you do to manage your clients. And I I actually want to bring up a quote um, that I think a lot of your audience has heard. The advice that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio gave Timothy Chalamet, no hard drugs and no superhero movies. Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I've never done a superhero movie, so I've done half of it. Um, No, I really think that, that... I don't think it's as simple as know this and know that, but I do think, you know, Timothy Chalamet, if you look at what he's done so far, or certainly Leonardo, as you look at what he's done for his whole career, it's working with great directors. It's working on movies that have a size and a scale and a complexity that's really, really compelling. But also a storyline that is, you know, there's something big and heroic and really scalable human. about it, and human. So I think that's, I think that's really important. And I think I, I don't remember because, of course, again, whether it was Betty Davis or Joan Crawford, but one of them said, you know, the stars didn't get smaller; the movies did. Right. And I think we're right there again. It's like the movies for our stars have gotten smaller. It's harder and harder for them to find a movie that will allow them to be great. Well, And be big. So they end up, you know, putting on some latex and doing a Marvel thing, which is great. You know, that's great, too. But it can't be the only diet that they're on.
1: But, Jeremy, how do you... Encourage from where you sit. How do you encourage the studios to take bigger swings?
0: Well, it's a combination of things, right? Because what studios will tell you is, yeah, but no one's writing those scripts, and and, and we will say, yeah, no one's writing those scripts because there, no one believes that the studios that there's that there's a a market for those things. So it's it really becomes everybody working together to decide. So it's incumbent on us. To remember the great scripts our writers have written before, and trying to bring them back to the fore, it's incumbent on the studios to look backwards into some of the stuff they've developed that might not quite have made it, but might still be great. It's incumbent on you know great writers to keep trying to you know write something that they think is special and big and and will really move the needle. All of these things, it's 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 it's, it's the coming together around a notion of we really want to, you know, we want to make things, we want to try to make some great things. Right. You know, because I think the whole system got very, uh, it became really, I don't want to say easy, but we, we got very, very focused. Everything was about IP and, uh, you know, sequels and remakes. And the idea of original ideas, big, original, powerful ideas, has, has sort of shrunk to the back seat.
1: When, um, when you meet with the up-and-coming timothy chalamet's uh in the world what what defines stardom to them do they still have this sort of you know gimlet eye view of the movie industry
0: well i think the beauty of actors is is that they, they don't walk in like i just want to be a star they walk in they want to do great work they want to work with great directors they want to be inspired uh and but they're all different. Not all of them want the same thing. You know, some of them want to. Some of them are dying to be in a Marvel movie. That's the, they've grown up loving Marvel movies. Nothing could be better. And right. others don't.
1: Right. And some of them want to be a social media star at the same time. Right.
0: And some of them wake up and say, "I want to be." And some of them are. Some you know, some clients. That's what they do. And we we have an amazing digital talent division. Emma
1: Chamberlain and the Demelios are exactly. with you. Exactly. Yep.
0: And and you know that's a you know, we used to all just laugh at YouTube and the cats playing piano, but that's become an incredibly powerful content platform.
1: Right. Okay. I think we've run over. Um, Thank you, Jeremy. You were amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you for having us here.
0: Thanks for coming, everybody. (laughs)